we think about Christmas, what Christmas means and what we do in the the celebration of it, the music, the the gatherings, the love of God in the incarnation, the theology that's represented, the hope that's represented, we can dive so deep that we would be diving still at the end of our lives. In the announcement of the the prophecy and in the announcement to Joseph and in the announcement to Mary and in the birth of this baby came everything that the, the Christmas hymns say. The hope of the nations is in this little one. In a couple of weeks when we return to Matthew and we see the the wise men, we will see men coming from the east who seek the one who has been born king of the Jews and they say, we saw his star when it rose. And they don't say we have, we have come to pay a diplomatic visit or we have come with some gifts in order to create an alliance between our peoples. They say, these, these men, we have come to worship because he is the light of the world. He is the hope of all mankind. As I was thinking about the sermon earlier this week and looking at uh, I was actually going to to preach out of Luke 2 and I thought well let's see what I did last year and last year I preached out of Luke 2 and there's a little bit of a challenge with Christmas and Easter of how do you how do you not just go back and just repeat words and so I just focused my attention on the name Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Matthew one twenty one, because we're studying the book of Matthew, the angel says to Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Father, we, we come now to look at your word and to consider what it means that Jesus is Jesus. And we ask for your help to understand and to trust and to believe and to be changed this morning because of your word and the truth it gives us. Speak to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Jesus is a plain name. It's not a fancy name. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, and we translate that in the Old Testament as Joshua. There were several Joshuas in the Old Testament. There was Joshua who led the people after Moses and took them into the promised land. Uh, There was another man who was Joshua the high priest during the time of the prophets Haggai and and Zechariah. In the New Testament, we see the the name Joshua given, although in the Greek text it's Jesus each time. Uh, We we see Simon Bar-Jesus, 
or, or son of Jesus in, in Acts chapter 13. He was a, a, a pagan magician. In Colossians 4.11, Paul talks about Jesus who was named Justice, so another Joshua. There's even a possibility based on some manuscripts that Barabbas, the murderer who was released when Jesus was on trial, uh, was actually named Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, Son of God. That's just a few manuscripts. There's nothing special about the name, but it is the sweetest name. It's the dearest name there is. I have the ability in my Bible software to look for absolutely every reference for the Son of God. The most common name given him in the New Testament is Jesus, more than 900 times. He's called Christ about 500 times. He's called Lord about 400 times. But he is called Jesus over and over and over again. There is something about that name, as the Gaithers saying. So let's think about it this morning. First of all, he is named by His Father, Jesus, is the name given to the incarnate Son of God by God the Father. We heard both texts this morning. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And and an angel, it might have been Gabriel, came to Joseph in a dream and said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In that world, it was the right of the Father to name His children. And God the Father named His Son. And the name He chose for His Son is Jesus. Yeshua in Hebrew. Jesus in Greek. Joshua in Hebrew back to English. Jesus literally means Savior. It means Savior. He is the Savior. But Jesus means Savior. The full Hebrew name is Yahweh, my Savior, or Yahweh is salvation. Before creation ever took place, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were all focused on a single purpose, to manifest their eternal glory by creating all that was created. In the process of making those decrees, God decreed the creation of all things by his eternal power, and he decreed the salvation of a specific people by his eternal grace. That salvation would be accomplished through the work of all three persons. The Father would give a people to the Son. The Son would enter human history as a man, truly as a man, and die as a substitute for those people, and the Spirit would carry out the application of salvation to those people throughout history. And then creation began, and God spoke. He spoke everything into existence. And then he said, let there be light, and there was light. And he continues to speak as Genesis 1 unfolds, until he gets to the latter part of Genesis 1, where it doesn't say God spoke and man was created. It says God formed man from the dust of the ground (coughs) there's a personal intimacy with the creation of man 
In Genesis 2, when it was time to create the woman, God doesn't just say, let there be woman. God took personally a rib from the side of man and God fashioned the rib into the woman and then brought her to the man again he is personally involved in the creation of mankind of man and woman both in the aftermath of the fall God personally comes walking in the garden to seek them out God personally slays an animal and covers them with its skins And when it comes time to save us, God personally comes as Savior, and he becomes a man. The father had all sorts of choices of what he could have named his son that would have been perfectly accurate. He could have named him Jehoshaphat, God will judge. He could have named him Rapha, healing. He could have named him Sidkenu, or righteousness. He could have named him Hamalek or King. He could have named him Biri, Creator. All of those would have been true. But the Father named his son Jesus because he came to save. Jesus was named for his purpose. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. He says in John chapter 10, the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You you see the personal aspect of our salvation. Paul later, decades later, says it, this bluntly in 1 Timothy 1.15, and this is a verse that we should all have memorized. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of, all, of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I start out to do all kinds of things. Jesus came to save. I start out to do all kinds of things. And get distracted. I came in this morning and saw the cables on the, on the chairs where Danny had put them so I would see them as soon as I came. And I saw them. And I got distracted and I didn't get all the cables hooked up that we'd bought. What about Jesus? What did he do? Well, he's named for his purpose, but he's also named for his work. The gospel shows Jesus uh, saving in, in small ways. For instance, when Jesus and his disciples were caught out on the Sea of Galilee during a storm, Jesus was asleep in the bow of the boat, snoring away. And the storm comes up, and, and, and the Sea of Galilee is not a, a huge, huge body of water, but because of where it lays with the hills and the mountains, it can get fierce storms because of winds coming in. They, they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And it's interesting. When they said, Save us, Lord, he he didn't say, Oh, yeah, sure, that's why I'm here. He, He said, Why are you afraid? Why didn't you trust that I would do this? 
In another example, a woman with a terrible affliction comes to him as he's walking through a crowd. And she comes to the crowd and she says to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be saved. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. And immediately the woman was made well. Most of our Bibles say something like, if only I touch his his garment, I will be healed or I will be made well. And that's the sense of it. But she uses the word saved and he uses the word saved. See, he saved in small ways. He delivered in small ways. He taught them. He healed them. He cast out demons. He fed them. Now, as wonderful as, as the healings were, as wonderful as, as the, the, the resurrections were, every person he ever healed died. Every person he ever raised from the dead died. Those healings and miracles were proof of his power to do something far greater and more eternal. Jesus didn't come to simply relieve temporary suffering or the heartaches of this life, but to bring eternal life to those who are condemned to eternal death. He did that by giving his own life on a cross. Again, the personal aspect of what he did. He gave his life as a substitute for sinners. And he wasn't shocked when the cross came. There's a point in Matthew 16, after Peter's confession of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, where it says Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be handed over and put to death and rise from the dead. And, and it's, it's in the scriptures a dozen times or half a dozen times in the Gospels. He must have been saying it to them nonstop. When Jesus comes to the garden and the arrest and the trial and the beatings and the crucifixion, none of that is a surprise to him. He knows it's going to take place, and he knows why it's going to take place. Just hours before his arrest, as they were finishing their celebration of Passover, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, he's Savior. He knew exactly what was coming and why. He was crucified. He satisfied the wrath of God. He washed away the sins of his people. He bore the awful weight of their guilt. And he announced on the cross, it is finished because he is Savior. Because he is Jesus. And yet he pronounced people forgiven before he died. He was having lunch one day in the, the home of a Pharisee, and as they were eating, a, a woman with a very bad reputation came in, and weeping, she washed his feet with her tears. And then she dried his feet with her hair. And there's a lengthy interchange with the Pharisee about what it means to be forgiven, but he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Another time, some men brought a paralyzed man to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus looked at him laying there on his, on his cot, laying there on his bed, paralyzed, and said, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And he didn't mean, I haven't died yet, and so your sins are forgiven is kind of this minor thing. 
He meant their sins were forgiven just as surely as Abraham's were, just as surely as David's were, just as surely as Isaiah's were. How could they be forgiven before he had died? Because their forgiveness was based on that moment in history that the Father had decreed. So that when the Lord forgave David his sins, he was as forgiven as you are today. Looking back 2,000 years at what Jesus did on the cross. But salvation was not just a legal declaration. It's not just a, a quick stamp of paid in full. Salvation is an ongoing process. Jesus is named for his purpose. Jesus is named for his work. And Jesus is named for his ongoing ministry. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 23, the writer, I think it's Paul, says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. From the moment Jesus ascended to the Father, and maybe before that, maybe as soon as he was raised from the dead, he has been interceding for his people. The thing about intercession is you can't do a generic intercession. You can pray for people without knowing who they are. You can't intercede that way. To intercede means you stand between God and somebody else. And so when Jesus began interceding for you, it's because he knew your face and he knew your name and he knew your life and he knew your sins and he knew your need. And he is not just the Son of God for you. He he is not just Lord for you. He is Savior for you, which means he is Jesus for you. His intercession is personal because he's Jesus, Savior. His intercession is perfect because he is Jesus, Savior. His intercession is present. It's going on all the time because he is Jesus, Savior. Romans 8, 31-39 says that because God is for us, And Jesus is interceding for us. Nothing can be against us, and no one can condemn us. And as a result, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. If you're like me, you hear that, and in the back of your head it says, what about my sin? But when he died, he said, your sin is gone. What about the sins I haven't committed yet? When he died, none of your sins had been committed yet. Get that in your head. Did Jesus die for your sins, past, present, and future? No. When he died, all your sins were future. He didn't die for some of your sins. He didn't say, I'll I'll do most of the heavy lifting and then leave these three... He took all of your sins. And he is even now interceding for you according to the will of the Father 
perfectly, personally, to bring you safely home. So we think about bringing this home today. Jesus is still Jesus. That sounds odd. That sounds strange. But what it means is Jesus is still Savior. The Savior is still Jesus. His name isn't just what we call him. His name is who he is and what he is. When you think about all of his titles, when you think about his attributes, you might start thinking that that Jesus died as our Savior and rose as our Lord. And once we accept him as Savior, once we commit to him as Lord, he's really not Savior anymore. Now he's the fearsome Lord. Now he's the strict master. Now he's the exacting judge. Now he's the great and awesome king. And he is those things. But Jesus is still Jesus. Jesus is still Jesus. In the very last book of the Bible, in the very last chapter of that book, in the very last thing that Jesus says to us in history, before his return, He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you. Not I, your Lord. Not I, your King. Those would be true. Absolutely true. But even at the end of all things, Jesus says, I am Jesus for you. I am your Savior. I remain your Savior. And John, as he brings the book of Revelation to a close, says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's a personal nature to Jesus being Savior that never stops. He is still Jesus. He is still Savior. He will always be Jesus. He will always be Savior. He will not cease his saving work until it's not necessary. He will not cease his saving work until it's been brought to perfect completion. And throughout all eternity, we will remember that he is Savior. That means we will remember that we sinned, but we will no longer remember the guilt or the shame. We will remember his love. We will remember his gift. We will remember that he is Savior. If we remember that he is Savior throughout all eternity, we must remember that we needed saving. We must remember his love. How do we bring this home today? How do we bring this into our lives today? We remind ourselves that Jesus must always be Jesus to us. However else we think of him, 
He must always be Jesus. We must never stop thinking of him as Jesus, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been in him, no matter how formal your training has been, no matter what rituals you've learned or where you have been been raised, you must never, ever forget that he is Jesus to you. You're on a first-name basis with him. And he is on a first-name basis with you as he lifts you up in prayer. If your faith is truly in Jesus, the Savior, then you know that he died in your place. That he knew you as he rose in victory. And he has prayed for you personally without ceasing. And so as, as we come to the day this week, as we come to the presence and the family and the food and, and, and all the celebration, enjoy that. Live like Solomon talks about in, in Ecclesiastes. Do it to the full. But don't forget that there is a Jesus who is your Savior. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your graciousness to us and your kindness. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our Savior. It's a busy week. There's a lot going on. There are plans still to be made. All sorts of activities. And I ask that by your Spirit, you would remind us this week of the gift of the Savior and the presence of the Savior for us. We thank you for this time this morning and give you the glory in Jesus' holy, precious name.